Welcome to the British History Podcast. My name is Jamie, and this is Episode 9, Suetonius, Part-Time Mountain Climber, Full-Time Jerk. This show is free and independent due to member support. And as thanks for helping keep the community going, I offer members-only content, such as extra episodes and rough transcripts. If you're interested in supporting the show and helping us out, you can do so over at thebritishhistorypodcast.com. And thank you very much to Heather, Dia, and Tom for being part of the project already. This episode covers the years 54 CE to 60 CE, and the major characters are Cartamandua, queen of the Brigantes and unhappy wife, Venutius, king of the Brigantes and unhappy husband, and Gaius Suetonius Paulinus, governor of Britannia and probably unhappy as well. In 41 CE, Gaius Suetonius Paulinus became the first Roman to cross the North African Atlas Mountains. It was quite an achievement. And his description of the mountains was even used by Pliny the Elder. As he crossed those peaks, I don't think he could have possibly imagined that in 19 years he would be on a cold, rainy island hemmed in by rebellion in both the East and the West. But we're getting ahead of ourselves. So we left off in 54 CE, and Emperor Claudius was dead, and now Nero was emperor. Although, he's still kind of young, so actually his murderous, creepy mother in all likelihood was the real emperor. Meanwhile, in Britannia, we have Governor Didius defending the south, and up in the north, in the kingdom of the Brigante, our lovers, Cartamandua and Venutius, were still having significant marital issues. But despite the fact that the world was ruled by unstable people, Governor Didius's reasonable policies did actually help ensure that there wasn't much to report until 57 CE. At that point, things for the Brigante hit a fever pitch when Cartamandua captured Venutius's family, including his brother. Imprisoning your in-laws? Not cool. And with that act, the conflict, which was mostly contained between them, was now fully spilling out into the kingdom, and the entire nation was soon racked with the civil war that I hinted at last week. Venutius took up the banner of Caractacus and led an armed rebellion against his wife and also her Roman allies. Families fought amongst themselves and against each other. Things quickly became bloody. Now, war against Rome was a new move for Venutius. Until this moment, he'd just been seeking to dethrone his wife. But now he was declaring himself an open enemy of Rome, and essentially the successor to Caractacus. As is the case with a lot of British history during this period, we don't have any first-hand account of what caused this change, and so we're forced to make some guesses. As you might remember, Venutius had been trying to dethrone his wife for many years at this point in history. And by all appearances, he used his wife's supplication to Rome and her treatment of Caractacus as his casus belli, his cause for war. But it's one thing to try and gain the throne, and it's quite another thing to take on all of Rome as well. So what changed? Well, his family were in the hands of Cartamandua, for one, and that actually might give us an insight into his motives. It suggests that Venutius was in a weak position and needed support in his fight since he wasn't even able to protect his own family. 
So to declare himself the heir to the rebellion of Caractacus might have been a political decision intended to bring in the support of the Silures, who were still in open rebellion and would actually continue to be for nearly 20 years. And it might also bring other rebels to his aid. So to me, that seems like the most likely explanation. So Venutius swiftly organized a rebellion against his wife and against Emperor Nero. Cartamandua once again had to defend her throne, and she begged Governor Didius for the support of the Roman military. Now, as we discussed last week, the governor felt the best path to success in Britannia was containment. This was something that Tacitus derided in his accounts, but I think that Didius was getting the short end of the stick. He almost certainly was acting under orders from Rome, not to mention that containment and solidifying the Roman hold on the south really was not a terrible plan. But regardless of his reasons, or Tacitus' feelings about it, Didius did not want to engage in the west or the north unless he had no other option. Luckily for Gardamandua, though, the Brigante were a bulwark against the wild north, and it suited Roman interests to have a friendly monarch holding the territory to prevent any of the raiding tribes of the north from coming down into the south into Roman-occupied lands. So the Roman legions were sent to aid Cartamandua, and found the territory in outright civil war. It seems that it wasn't just Venutius who was outraged by her actions, but also a good portion of her subjects. In fact, these were probably the same citizens that rebelled nine years earlier. Brigantia, after all, was like Britannia in many ways. Fractured. There were those who supported the Roman occupation and the reign of Cartamandua, and then there were those who flocked to Venutius' banner. But the two factions were not necessarily equal in strength. And with the support of the Roman military, Cartamandua held on to her throne, and the rebellion could no longer be pursued in the open, at least for a time. Direct confrontation with the Romans would be suicide, so things had to be left to simmer. And the people of Brigantia were forced to hide their rage, as was Venutius, which probably would have been quite hard for him to do. After all, he had a really good reason to be murderous. Sure, Cartamandua had supported Rome. She also invited Roman troops onto Brigantian soil, and she captured his family. Oh, and she also held the throne that he coveted. But here's the thing. She also took on a new lover and proclaimed him king. This man, Velocatus, was Venutius's former armor bearer, which is basically his squire. Now, this couldn't have been a total shock. After all, once you're leading an armed rebellion against your wife and she's holding the in-laws at knife point, reconciliation does seem pretty unlikely. At the very least, it'll take some serious family counseling. But to take up with Velocatus? The ancient equivalent of shacking up with a pool boy? Oh man, that must have stung. So this conflict really had everything to capture the imagination of the common people who heard it. Betrayal, sex, heartache, it really had it all. And consequently, Cartamandua's power in Brigantia was dwindling fast as even her staunch supporters started to swing towards Venutius's side. The queen became ever more reliant upon Roman might to keep her seated upon the throne. Meanwhile, matters in the south were becoming ever more fragile, and it was so bad that the young Emperor Nero had been seriously considering abandoning Britannia entirely, but he determined that he couldn't undermine the achievements of Emperor Claudius. 
To retreat from the territory after his stepfather had attained the title of Britannicus would have been humiliating. And so, if he was going to keep the region, he would at least need to pacify it. And so, cuddly Governor Didius was recalled to Rome in 57 CE, the same year that Rome had to intervene with the Brigante Civil War. And he was replaced by Quintus Veranius. And Veranius was tasked with the conquest of Wales. No longer would Rome seek containment, which was actually proving to be rather expensive. But now, Rome would accept no less than total subjugation. And we really don't know anything about Veranius' conquest. But when we look into the matter in context, namely at the speed in which his successor found success, I think it's safe to assume that Veranius engaged in a fairly heavy and successful military campaign in Wales. However, within a year of his arrival, he would be dead. And once again, I feel the need to point out what a horrendous post Britannia must have been. Governors were dropping dead left and right. And while Didius survived, he really was maligned by Tacitus for being essentially a coward. I mean, this was a terrible job. I can't believe anybody wanted it. But apparently somebody did. Because upon receiving news of Veranius' death, Nero appointed Gaius Suetonius Paulinus in 59 CE. And Suetonius followed in the footsteps of his predecessor and struck deep into Wales with his legions. Now, while the legions were primarily Roman, they were supported by subjugated Britons. And this might seem disloyal or counterintuitive, but the fact of the matter is that any Briton who provided 25 years of military service to Rome was granted military citizenship. And with that citizenship came a variety of benefits. So the Silures of Wales were not just fighting the Romans, but they were also fighting British auxiliaries. Of course, that wasn't really the end of the world, though. It wasn't like the Britons were unaccustomed to fighting amongst themselves, after all. But nonetheless, things for the rebellion were not looking good, since they now had to deal with Romanized Britons in addition to the Romans. And actually, let's take a moment to talk about the Roman-held territories, since we haven't addressed that in any detail yet. And it's been nearly 20 years since the Romans conquered the south, and over a decade since they established Camelodunum as their center of operations, and actually, essentially, the primary school of the Roman way of life. So, the successive governors all had different methodologies. Some used carrots, others used sticks, but they were all attempting to do the same thing make Britannia a province of Rome. But the trouble is that while you can claim that Britannia was part of Rome, you still have Britons living there. These warlike natives from 23 tribal regions had repeatedly shown that they couldn't effectively work together, and yet the governors were expected to make them unite and serve under a single ruler. Even worse, a single foreign ruler. Now, the south was the most easily controlled, so it made sense that the center of Roman life was located there. But the remainder of the island was another story entirely, and the governor's forces were continually harassed by British warriors. To Romanize the north and the west could well require other tactics, or even possibly containment. But the south seemed well-situated to experiment with socializing the barbarians. And the name of the game here was urbanization. Basically, what would happen in early Roman Britain was that an army would set up its forts, usually at strategic locations such as river crossings, and then once the fort was built, 
There was a centralized group of individuals, namely the soldiers, who were isolated and in need of goods, and probably companionship. And that's an ideal market for vendors. So traders soon sprung up around the forts. And with those traders came, of course, housing for the traders. And a settlement was soon established. Once the army left, the fort would be handed over to the civilian population, who would often demolish the fort and spread the settlements over that territory. And voila, you have a new Roman town. Now these towns were unlike the traditional British settlements, which were characterized by a small collection of round, thatch-roofed cottages and a primarily agrarian lifestyle. The smaller Roman towns were often haphazardly thrown together and hastily walled in. And the larger Roman towns were often much more organized, with their rectangular shape, organized grid of streets, administrative buildings and common sense location, and attention placed upon making the settlement look and feel like a classical Roman town. And then the next rung up the ladder were the capital cities. At this point, Camulodunum, which was modern-day Colchester, and Verulamium, which is modern-day St. Albans, were most likely part of this class of settlement. And here, you found traders, manufacturers, and the political ruling class of the region. Well, that's kind of the intent anyways. To begin with, it was difficult to get the ruling class to live in the towns, since the British aristocracy at the time preferred to live in their country estates. And when you think about it, it isn't hard to imagine why. They had large open expanses, peace and quiet, and none of the irritating annoyances of city living. They didn't have to deal with the noise, nor the smell, nor the irritating neighbors. Furthermore, there's a traditional aspect to it. Their families had always lived in the countryside, and it had served them well. Why should they now uproot and relocate to a smaller home in a foreign settlement that's filled with strangers, and it's loud, and it smells awful? But getting the political class of Britain to live in the towns was central to the Romanization of Britannia, and so pressure was placed upon them to relocate. After all, once the aristocracy were living in towns, social pressure, fashion, and available work would draw the lower orders to the towns. One of the ways the Romans accomplished this was not just to put pressure on the nobles, but also to use the towns the same way realtors use model homes. They would show off the availability of Roman goods, such as wine, and modern conveniences, like hippocausts. And a hippocaust is actually pretty neat. It's essentially ancient centralized heating. The Britons had never seen anything like it. And in a wet and cold land, having a floor that could radiate heat would have been quite a draw. As a side note, after the fall of Rome, Britannia wouldn't have centralized heating until the middle 1800s. So we're talking about 1400 years of cold feet and spending your evening huddled around a fire. So yeah, it was quite a sales pitch. And in addition to not freezing to death in the winter, there were also public buildings that offered wonders the Britons had never had access to before, such as public baths, which actually also used hippocausts unless they were located over hot springs. So, with wonders like these, and of course, with a healthy amount of fear for Roman power, the aristocracy began to spend more time in Roman settlements. However, this was still likely a seasonal activity, and they would return to their estates throughout the year. But with the aristocracy in the Roman towns, other Britons began to follow, and the Romanization of Britannia truly began. However, just because you have a lot of Britons living in Roman-style buildings doesn't suddenly make them Roman. You can make the Briton wear the toga, 
but you still have a Briton underneath the toga. So what do you do? Well, the Romans used a careful mix of education, pop culture, and encouragement. The Britons were encouraged to be good Roman subjects, and if they were lucky, good Roman citizens. And most subjugated Britons wanted to be citizens. After all, it allowed a wide variety of privileges and also a good number of protections from abuses that non-citizens were forced to endure. So you would get access to the halls of power and you're largely protected from being tortured at the whim of a Roman officer. You'd have to be mad not to want to become a citizen. But it wasn't easy. And therefore, the Romans had quite a carrot they could use to encourage the Britons to change their ways. And the cities helped them accomplish this. Moreover, having the Britons in a concentrated area gave the Romans the opportunity to watch and correct any behavior they felt was barbaric. So before long, under Roman encouragement and education, the Britons were wearing togas, building temples, and even speaking Latin. Now that latter point, the Latin, should be spoken of a little bit more. Latin was not an unknown language on the island prior to the Claudian invasion. And so the Romans didn't have to start from scratch. We see pre-invasion coins that use the inscription Rex to indicate regency. So there were individuals who understood Latin in early Britannia. And Calavet Atrabatum, which is modern-day Silchester, certainly used Latin prior to the Claudian invasions. But of course, that was Commius's colony, so it probably shouldn't be too surprising. But regardless, Latin was present in pre-Roman Britannia. And once the Romans occupied the south, the spread of Latin occurred rapidly. And by some accounts, the British version of Latin was actually a more pure and grammatically correct version than what you would have heard on the streets of Rome. And actually, if you think about it, it makes sense. The Britons were learning Latin in schools, whereas the people in Rome were learning it from their families as they grew up. So in these towns, you began to find Romanized Britons who spoke a pure form of Latin and were careful to behave as good Roman citizens. But that wasn't the case for all of the island. And the Solures to the west certainly had no interest in Roman life. And that brought them into direct conflict with Governor Suetonius. His push into Wales was steady and brutal. However, his legions were making significant advances. And so in 60 CE, Governor Suetonius and his men doggedly fought the Silures and their allies until they finally reached Innes Mon, modern-day Anglesey. Now, Innes Mon was a major holy site for the Druids and a refuge for the rebel Britons. So simply reaching this stronghold was a significant achievement and quite a blow for the rebels. Further, it was essentially the breadbasket for the Ordovices, so to take it would be to devastate the Welsh morale and inflict famine upon a large swath of their territory. And that was pretty much exactly what the Roman governor wanted. So Suetonius gathered his legions and prepared to take the island. He ordered his infantry to board flat-bottomed boats while the cavalry swam alongside their horses. It didn't take long to cross the narrow stretch of water. And there they found, quote, a dense host of armed men interspersed with women clad in black like the Furies, with their hair hanging down and holding torches in their hands. Round this were Druids uttering dire curses and stretching their hands towards heaven, end quote. The Romans later wrote about how the trees behind the Britons were red with the blood of Roman soldiers. 
Upon seeing this, the legions froze in place, terrified. The Britons, men and women alike, charged forth and attacked the Roman invaders, and still the Roman army was paralyzed. It wasn't until Suetonius relied on old-fashioned Roman misogyny and chastised them for quaking before a rabble of female fanatics that the soldiers snapped out of their trance and made an attack upon the Britons. And once they organized, as is the way with Roman legions, it didn't take long before they enveloped the Britons and slaughtered them. Suetonius then set his men to the task of cutting down the sacred groves and prepared a garrison. Total domination was within sight. And then a messenger came with news of a massive rebellion in the east. An army of Iceni had risen up under a warrior queen and were intent on butchering every Roman in Britannia. He was so close to conquering Wales. But if he were to stay and complete the task, Suetonius would risk losing all of Britannia in the process. He had no choice. The legions would have to return to the south. The Silures and the Rebellion were rescued from the brink, and thanks to Boudicca, it would be another 15 years before Rome would be able to bring their rebellion to an end. And next week, we will talk about Boudicca. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can reach me at the British History Podcast at gmail.com. We're also on Facebook, Twitter, everything, and you can find links to it all at the British History Podcast.com. All right, thanks for listening. <laughs>